keep getting more intense, we are now studying the horror of Babylon, the mother of harlots, the mystery behind it, and the giant paradox that sits at the heart of Revelation. Really, when you think about it, Revelation is about this confrontation between God and this harlot. But it's not just the centerpiece of Revelation. Actually, it goes back to the first chapter of Isaiah and a lot of other prophecies from the major prophets who were looking forward to seeing the fulfillment of God's restoration of Zion and his punishment of Babylon. But the paradox at the heart of it all blinds Israel and makes it so that even most biblical scholars today can't figure out that Jerusalem and Babylon become the same thing by the end of the world. Drunk on the blood of the saints, the prophets, there's so much here to unpack. That's why we take our time. This is kind of a long episode. I really think you're going to love it if you love a deep study of the Bible and you're open-minded. Chapter 13. Mother of Harlots. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Revelation sixteen seventeen. We know there is only one entity who could be on the throne in the temple of heaven. And when he says, It is done, there is no other answer. However, nothing has happened yet. The vial was poured out into the air, but no events unfolded on earth. By this simple declaration, therefore, we have a confirmation of our whole method of approaching interpretation. First, an event occurs in heaven, signifying what must happen on earth. And then it is immediately treated by those in heaven as if it is already accomplished, irreversible, and fated to play out. This happens over and over again, with the breaking of the seals in heaven unleashing the riders on earth, the golden censer being thrown into the earth signifying the impending meteor strikes, the conversion of Jerusalem's inhabitants, signifying the capture of all the world's kingdoms, the harvests and the treading of the winepress leading to the plagues being poured out. Here, the pouring out of the final vial of wrath does not seem to accomplish anything just yet, but God already declares it is done. It means there is no stopping it now. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Revelation sixteen, eighteen to 21 
Unlike the scary cosmic events of the sixth seal, which sent the men of the earth to hide under the mountains and declare that it was the day of the Lord, we now see true devastation, with world-changing results when the real day approaches. Never before in history has there been an earthquake as powerful as this. Cities around the world will be ruined, and Babylon itself will be split into three parts. This is extremely important. The hail that is so exceedingly great may be the result of the earthquake itself, as human structures and the mountains, which somehow were not found, could suddenly be airborne, hurled through the skies. All that stone has to go somewhere, right? The more devastated the world becomes, the more the false prophet will no doubt consolidate his grip on their minds, convincing them of the need to kill Jesus and destroy Jerusalem to save the planet. Babylon itself has only been mentioned once so far, a while ago, as the second angel flying through the sky was warning the world about how it was doomed. Now we see that Babylon came in remembrance of God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. These are obviously very old and enduring symbols throughout prophecy, but that only further magnifies this ultimate climax of world history about to happen. Everything before this was a shadow fulfillment, as scholars call it, or a rehearsal for this final conclusion. For some reason, God has chosen not to remember Babylon until now, but has been storing up his wrath like wine in his cup. She will have to drink that cup. When we see the description of her, it will be clear how fitting this punishment is, since she has been drunk on the blood of the saints and caused kings to drink of her fornication, acting like the biggest whore in the world. Babylon, the home of evil, doomed for destruction. Let's look at a psalm that contrasts Babylon and Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise, destroy, it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee, as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth 
thy little ones against the stones. Psalms 137, verse 1 to 9. This psalm shows us the emotional contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. Ever since the early accounts of Genesis, where Nimrod commanded the building of the Tower of Babylon, Babel, shortly after Noah's flood, Babylon has been a symbol of worldly power and Gnostic forbidden arts. God personally disrupted their language and scattered them across the world in order to prevent them from accomplishing everything they wanted. Neo-Babylon is the term historians use for its later revival, over a thousand years later, around 600 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Israel and took them captive. By destroying Solomon's temple and forcing the captured Jews to live within their pagan society as a class of captive citizens, Babylon not only served as a symbol of united global evil, but the biggest symbol of God's punishment against his people if they stray too far. Strangely, this punishment comes in the form of seduction away from God rather than outright oppression and slavery like in Egypt. Notice how the psalm talks about the danger of forgetting Jerusalem while sitting by the river Euphrates. That is a very unusual risk. It talks about being invited to sing and be happy, too. Jewish scribes were allowed to mingle their Judaic religious beliefs with the religion of the Babylonians, which is considered spiritual fornication by God. This all leads to the devout prophet Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, predicting the fall of the empire and the succession of other kingdoms that will take over until the time of the Messiah and the eternal kingdom. Considering how the Euphrates River has already taken center stage repeatedly in Revelation, it might be tempting to look at modern enemies of Israel along the Euphrates River as Babylon, countries like Syria and Iraq. Anyone supporting these nations could also be accused of defying God and helping Babylon, such as the United Nations, which is openly modeled after the original Tower of Babel concept in their own admission. This interpretation helps explain the obsession with toppling anti-Israeli governments and killing their leaders among neocon Zionists, who believe they are fulfilling the deliverance of Israel and ushering in the construction of the Third Temple and the return of the Messiah. Others have given up on a literal fulfillment and see only themes, archetypes, and an eternal struggle to protect Israel and secure the Holy Land for themselves, with the role of Messiah fitting anyone who does their part to save Israel and aid them. Either way, we have a massive satanic deception surrounding the topic. Jerusalem's Role in the Post-Church World The destruction of the true church by Satan's conspiracy will change the landscape of the religious political world and remove the influence of real Christianity from inside governments and institutions worldwide. Most likely, all false churches within the beast system will thrive 
and maintain the illusion that Christianity is alive and well, though perhaps with a new twist of environmental extremism or some other heresy. Their unchallenged blasphemy and corruption will taint the image of Jesus in ways that are impossible to fulfill today, thanks to the resistance of real Christians within their organizations and at the grassroots level. We have no way of knowing how quickly or thoroughly nations will change as a result of the true church dying. But if the true Christians were killed as a result of some enormous wedge issue that exposes and divides the real ones from the false ones, it could explain a power shift happening at the same time. It could be a Mark of the Beast project engineered by Satan's servants to make that prophecy literal instead of just spiritual. Whatever the issue is, it's likely that the survivors of the so-called church and the evil world leaders will unite in a new world order system. In this framework, the question becomes what Israel's role will be. Will they be complicit? Will they defend the true church? Do they have blood on their hands? Satan knows that Jerusalem is the prize, and thanks to the Jeremiah 3137 loophole, his Gnostic conspirators will believe that they can take it over forever and resist God's attempt to take it back. As we have seen, that leads to the two witnesses, the earthquake, and the realization that this loophole was unsuccessful. But before that point comes, in their arrogance, they will build a temple, which John measures, and the beast itself will rise up to stop the witnesses, showing an alliance of some kind, since the beast does not go on to destroy the city, but only the witnesses. The third temple will therefore need to be constructed in a time when Israel is protected by the beast, and likely positioned as the backbone of the New World Order's economy. The ambitious Zionist agenda of today morphs into a lust for world dominance, fulfilling in their minds the promise of God to establish Zion as the divinely protected kingdom of heaven, ruling the nations. Therefore, in this future post-church world, the city of Babylon found in Revelation is none other than Jerusalem itself, creating the ultimate paradox. After all, how can Babylon and Jerusalem be the same? Isn't Babylon supposed to be destroyed, but Jerusalem saved? If we remember the massive angel swearing that the mystery of God would be resolved in the days of the seventh trumpet, we see that God himself acknowledges the magnitude of the enigma. But at the same time, logically, this means Babylon cannot be something obvious like the United Nations, because otherwise it would not be mysterious, which is how Revelation characterizes it. It must be surprising and controversial 
despite also fulfilling ancient prophecies that have been studied by dozens of generations. Let's remember the big picture. Jesus Christ talks to his churches in the first few chapters, showing that they are his only concern. He gives no message whatsoever to Israel or Jerusalem as a people, but rather warns Christians to watch out for the synagogue of Satan, which claim to be Jews, but are lying. And since Jesus is the Messiah of the real Jews and Savior of all nations, it is impossible to suggest that anyone complicit in the death of the church can be in any way holy or blessed by God. The Judaism of the post-church world must be wayward at best, if not complicit. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John five, twenty-two to 24 We already know that everyone who denies Jesus Christ is deceived by the spirit of Antichrist. So it's impossible for any religion, including Judaism, to be legitimate if they don't honor Jesus as Lord. In the post-church world, this will be even more obvious. Revelation is a commentary on the fate of the Christian church from the first century until the end of the world. In particular, it revolves around our struggle against Satan's deceptive, blasphemous conspiracy on earth. It shows how we are falsely accused and killed for speaking the truth, just as Jesus himself was. Once the church is totally killed, however, the focus shifts to the 144,000 Israelite elect, who are destined to fulfill some of the oldest and biggest promises of the Bible. This holy remnant is met by Jesus on Mount Zion, merging end-time Israel and Christian promises. For Babylon to come into God's remembrance means that the city is going to be held accountable for all of its past sins, blasphemies, arrogance, and wicked dealings, even though it was tolerated until now. This contradicts the myth that God is constantly judging and punishing nations for things they do from day to day. For an unknown period of time, since perhaps before the death of the church, Jerusalem has been controlled by fake Jews and the synagogue of Satan, leading it into the most evil conspiracy in history. The offensiveness of this final period 
will be far beyond even ancient blasphemy because these people had the Church of Christ as an example. If there was any doubt, just look at how God calls Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt, connecting it with the only city in history where the Lord was crucified. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Revelation 11, 8 If God considers Jerusalem to be Sodom and Egypt, it means he will want to destroy it the way he did with those ancient evils. Sodom was known for constant wickedness and perversion, while Egypt was known for enslaving the Israelites and not letting them go. Why would God equate the Jewish homeland to Egypt? It's another paradox. It speaks to the deeper satanic deception. By creating his own version of Jerusalem, Satan can lure in the Jews and enslave them to his beast system, rewarding them with riches and protection as he seeks the Jeremiah 31-37 loophole, which is his chance to divorce Israel from God. We should praise God for wanting to destroy this future Babylon, but we must be careful to see the layers of prophecy coming into view. The judgment and destruction of Jerusalem is not a simple affair. It will tie into the abomination of desolation, the man of sin, the rapture, the resurrection, and of course, the battle of Armageddon. Synagogue of Satan in total power. Then one of the seven angels, having the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And those dwelling on the earth became drunk from the wine of her fornication. And he led me away in spirit into a deserted place. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 17, verse 1 to 3. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, 18. The most important thing about this city is its relationships. Women are not considered symbols of strength. Instead, they are defined by their relationships and sexual activity with men. In other words, this future city is not a military superpower of the world, but needs others to protect it and do its bidding for her. This makes sense when we notice that she sits on the beast. She can be weak, but
It is strong and carries her like a queen. God finds her relationships repulsive, sinful, and improper. This already points us to Jerusalem, because that's the only city God really cares about keeping pure. He has always wanted his city to be holy, like a virgin for its Messiah, or a perfect bride. On the other hand, it means Satan's ultimate goal would have to involve defiling it, fornicating with it, and blaspheming with it as much as possible in order to mock, provoke, and tempt God. This, in turn, heightens our Jeremiah 31:37 view, because that verse says God will reject Israel specifically for all that it has done, not just a general rejection. The more guilty Jerusalem is, the more God will have no choice but to honor his own promise and forsake it. Fornication is a perfect metaphor for what goes on with this city. World leaders partner with it and have indecent arrangements with it. Their fornication becomes a wine that the whole world gets drunk on. This is another way of saying it is involved in alliances and conspiracies with various nations that result in global deception. The fact that she sits comfortably on the beast shows that it has a particular relationship with Rome's final incarnation, which looks to be similar to the first one we saw, but now scarlet-colored and not wounded and healed. This could be the beast that came out of the bottomless pit and waged war against the two witnesses. If so, we would expect it to be a dark Gnostic sect or movement that controls world elites and religious views. The city rules over the kings of the earth, but not in some distant past. It has power in the period John is witnessing, in our future. This means it's not necessarily commenting on our current day's powers, or some eternal city that always reigns. Very likely, its rise to this triumphant position will be connected with the death of the church and the ensuing corruption of the world, because it is drunk on the blood of the Christian martyrs themselves. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, gilded with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup, being filled with abominations and the filthiness of the fornication of the earth. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Revelation seventeen, four to 6 
Notice first that John is amazed by this woman and her nature. This reinforces the fact that John does not know what he is describing in this vision. He is not holding back any information, and he is not making it up himself. This is not some intellectual exercise combining his own ideas of prophecy and remixing the promises of the old prophets or disciples. This is not a book simply influenced by the apocryphal book of Enoch or John's own musings. This should be obvious when we remember what Peter said about prophecy. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 20-21 As for the description of the woman, we see that she is rich, arrogant, and drunk on the blood of the saints and martyrs. When we keep in mind that this is a description of a future city, having world power and reigning over kings, it has far-reaching implications about our own future. This city not only tastes the blood of the true Christians, but drinks so much of our blood and enjoys it so much that she gets drunk by it. And this is no wonder. If the fake Jews belonging to the synagogue of Satan, who will run this future Jerusalem, managed to kill the church and get away with it, they would feel like they had defeated the gospel of Jesus, whom they consider to be an accursed false messiah. Thus, it is also no wonder that she is so deeply hated in God's eyes. The first descriptor in her name is mystery, making it indisputable that something about her is paradoxical, enigmatic, and hard to believe. Calling Jerusalem Babylon the Great and the mother of harlots and abominations seems to imply a long lineage tracing back to the Tower of Babel, but it does not necessarily have to do with the past or present. It could be entirely about the future version of Jerusalem yet to manifest, which conspires, fornicates, with the world leaders to eliminate the Christian church and get drunk on their blood. This fornication produces abominations and harlots, in the sense that it will convince world leaders that they should go along with the satanic NWO agenda and have no fear of God. In our current day, despite so much horrific evil and conspiracy already, the existence of the church is holding back the worst extremes, because Christians are quick to raise awareness and objections to wicked plans when we see them. Just imagine how many abominations will be birthed by the whoring and fornicating of world leaders after we're gone. And as we have seen many times already in Revelation, 
the lack of fear toward God is something he takes very seriously. Getting drunk on the blood of the saints speaks to a total arrogance. The Beast Against Jesus and His 144,000 Elect But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast carrying her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw was, existed before, and is not, does not currently exist, and is about to ascend out of the bottomless pit, rise to power again, and go to perdition, be destroyed. And those who dwell on the earth shall marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was, and is not, and shall be present. Revelation seventeen seven to 8 This is not as complicated as it first seems. Rome was the fourth beast kingdom in Daniel's vision, predicted to last until the end of the world. Therefore, we know that Rome will be the great ruling power until the end no matter how many versions and rebirths it must undergo. And it has had a very diverse history. Even when it seems to go away, it is promised to come back. Remember that in the heavenly history lesson, we see that Rome gets a fatal wound and should have died, but is revived in power by Satan giving it his power healing it and causing the world to be amazed. From there, it reinvents itself and is reinvented as the anti-church, splitting into Catholic and Orthodox and gaining new powers over time. Then the Italian Renaissance reinvents Roman power again, except with a secular humanist guise, Taken all together, this is the beast that was. But by the time John is being shown the great horror, that beast system seems to be gone. There are many reasons the beast could appear to be gone, but we also see that she is still sitting on it. This creates a paradox, which is why the angel calls it a mystery. However, it's not so impossible to understand if we remember that Jerusalem itself is fraudulent and run by fake Jews belonging to the synagogue of Satan. Israel was created by the United Nations via Jesuit conspiracy and has been under their protection and guidance ever since, duping evangelical Christians into the theological view that modern Israel is sacred and must be protected at all costs. We've discussed how this ties in to the neocon agenda. If the modern beast of neo-Roman influence becomes interchangeable with secret societies, Jesuit proxies, 
and imposter Judaism. It's very appropriate to say that the whore can be riding the beast even while the beast, anti-Christian Roman imperial power, seems to be invisible or missing. In place of outward Roman Catholic and Orthodox religions, there may be New Age mysticism or some branch of paranormal science cults. The image of the beast means that Satan does not need the veneer of Christian religion to carry out his beast system. As for the version of the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit and goes into perdition, it could be many things. It seems to have already popped up temporarily to kill the two witnesses, and perhaps gone away again. We will remind the reader how unlikely it is for the average person in the future to recognize any of these prophetic events for what they are, just as we today are not recognizing the beast, the mark, and so many other things in Revelation. It may be that in the time of the false prophet, after Jesus returns to Mount Zion with the 144,000, and the wrath of God is poured out on the planet, the beast that is about to rise is the same as the false prophet itself, exploiting the hatred and misery of world leaders as he unites them in a crusade against Jesus. Whether they would acknowledge the reality of Christ's return or not is another matter. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are, additionally, seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the false prophet. And the other has not yet come, the man of sin. And whenever he, the man of sin, comes, he must abide for a short time. And the beast which was and is not is also an eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten conspirator kings, who not yet have received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings for one hour with the beast. These have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called and elect and faithful. Revelation seventeen, nine to fourteen. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. Revelation seventeen, fifteen. 
How can the horror city be simultaneously sitting on many nations and languages, but also sitting on the beast that does not exist, and on seven mountains? The answer is that her seat is a symbol of her power source, or the geopolitical and spiritual arrangements she enjoys. Just as Jesus said that he knew where Satan's seat or throne was, and Satan gave his seat to the beast, and the angel poured out a vial of wrath on the seat of the beast to fill its kingdom with darkness, this city has a seat that is abstract and not meant to be taken so literally. Jerusalem's seat is distributed among the nations. It has no true source of power, but rather makes conspiratorial arrangements with various world leaders, nations, peoples, and languages. It is responsible for their wealth, their luxury, and the satanic triumph over the church. So it only makes sense that a description of her seat would be so complicated. This is different from how a proper kingdom operates, having a throne and a spiritual being in charge of it. At the time of this description, immediately before the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of the false prophet, there have been five kings before, perhaps symbolizing the four riders of Rome's amazing blasphemous history, and somebody else we wouldn't recognize today. The sixth is the false prophet, currently leading the world against Jesus and seemingly united in spirit and body with the beast itself. The seventh is the man of sin, who will create the abomination of desolation and who must abide for a short time, perhaps being another embodiment of the beast. Interestingly, the ten kings who conspire to attack Jesus and the 144,000 do not have power yet, but they will be empowered. This could mean that the false prophet has to forge new alliances, looking in unusual places to raise up military leaders purely for this one task. This explains why they only have power for one hour. That one hour is the assault on Jerusalem. And the ten horns, temporary leaders, which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolated and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. Revelation 17 16 to 17. Now we begin to see the convergence of the narratives. After all, weren't we just told that the ten horns had one purpose 
and were going to make war with the lamb and his elect. But suddenly they are attacking the harlot of Babylon. Considering that they only have power for one hour and for this one purpose, these are not separate goals. So how is it possible that they will destroy Babylon and make her desolate and yet be against Jesus Christ, who presumably hates Babylon just as much? Only by realizing that Jerusalem is Babylon and that this conspiracy is being sent to destroy Zion, where Christ is waiting with his 144,000 elect. A Continuation of Isaiah's Warning John's language of Babylon being desolate, stripped naked, having its flesh eaten, and being burned with fire is not accidental. It is a reference to judgments that were reserved for Jerusalem in the prophetic warnings of Isaiah hundreds of years before the Neo-Babylonian reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the supposed injustice against Jerusalem in the days of Daniel. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is the first verse of Isaiah, explicitly saying that what follows is about Judah and Jerusalem, not anybody else. See for yourself how God feels about Jerusalem, and think about how it compares to future Babylon in Revelation. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken, corrected, any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land... Strangers, devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Isaiah 1, 
verse 1 to 8. It is the same language, stripped naked, desolate, burned, and eaten. Because in God's eyes, the entire project of Judaism has been a failure and can no longer be corrected with small reminders and punishments. It is beyond healing, hopeless from head to toe, even before he can send the Messiah to try. Therefore, he engineers a plan to keep them ignorant and send a Messiah whom they will reject and changes the plan to be a covenant for all mankind, not just Israel. We see that the 144,000 remnant of Israelites is also prophesied immediately after, showing that God will not abandon the people themselves altogether. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, the 144,000, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Isaiah 1, verse 9. Considering that God calls Jerusalem, the city where the Lord was crucified, Sodom in Revelation, we know that his feelings about the city have not changed since this time. From Isaiah until the end of the world, he sees the city as Sodom, needing destruction. Jerusalem is altogether beyond redemption and cannot be pleasing to God, destroying the Christian Zionist narrative. Jesus himself mourned for the city because it rejected him and would not hear him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When the two witnesses ascend, and the earthquake kills the 7,000 men, and the heavenly history lesson is complete. Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven to 39 In John's Gospel account, we actually see a direct reference to Isaiah because of this mystery of God hardening the hearts of the Jews. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, in Isaiah 6.10, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, condemning themselves, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John twelve thirty seven to 43 John, who writes Revelation, recognizes the importance of Isaiah's warning about how God refused to allow Judah to understand the truth about his Messiah. Even those who secretly believed in Jesus are too afraid of the Jewish leadership to confess it, and therefore they will be accursed and rejected by God, since confessing Jesus is an absolute requirement for salvation. They loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. But let's look at the bigger context of Isaiah John is quoting to make the point even more clear. And he, God, said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I, Isaiah, said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah 6, 9-13 Considering that Isaiah himself asks the question, we know that the timing here is of the utmost importance. Just as Daniel wanted to know about the time of deliverance, Isaiah is aching to know how long God will blind the Jews and hold back their understanding. The shocking answer is that it will continue until the land of Jerusalem is totally desolate and destroyed, and only a small remnant remains, like a stump after the tree is cut down, called the Holy Seed. This did not happen in the days of Jesus, and neither did it when the great Jewish diaspora after 70 AD happened. If it had, we would expect their eyes to be opened and their understanding to be restored, leading them to Jesus Christ. But the practitioners of Judaism, who were so attached to the Second Temple in 70 AD, 
were falsely trying to maintain the Jewish law, rejecting Jesus. When they were scattered around the world, they did not turn to Jesus. Doing so would have been the correct path and proof that Isaiah's warning was fulfilled. Instead, they became even more perverse in their thinking and created new branches of Judaism that eventually led to more extreme mysticism, subversion, and anti-Christian sentiment. They only became more blinded, in other words. This has never been reversed, and self-proclaimed Jews still hate and disrespect Jesus in their teachings. Some believed, perhaps, that the holy seed being spoken of was the Jewish bloodline itself, and that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the sense that it pointed away from Jesus and towards some kind of world conspiracy to overthrow governments and restore Zion themselves. As for why God would deal so harshly with his own people for thousands of years, we must go back to the first chapters of Isaiah. He's tired of their falseness, their arrogance, and their lack of true understanding. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 1, 10-15 This is not simply an archetypal reminder to Jewish leaders to consider. The great purpose of it is to establish the mystery of God that will be fulfilled only in the days of the seventh trumpet. Jerusalem is so worthless to God that he calls it Sodom, both in Isaiah and in Revelation. It has not changed. He also calls Jerusalem a horror in Isaiah already. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Isaiah 1, 21 God decides to relieve his grief by using his own enemies to do the job, purging the city of its evil and leaving nothing behind but the small remnant. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, 
the Mighty One of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from mine enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Isaiah 1, 24-25 Anyone who still thinks that God values Jerusalem inherently is mistaken and has not understood what Jesus himself taught. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the roots of the trees. Tradition, dogma, institutional religion. Therefore, every tree, belief, which bringeth forth not good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Matthew 3, 9-10 His hand is stretched out still. There is a phrase in Isaiah which is repeated many times when discussing the fullness of God's judgment against the Jews and the rest of the world. His hand is stretched out still. God reaches his hand out to destroy the wicked and save the righteous. Reaching out is a metaphor for interference in the ways of the world. It's scattered throughout the book, crossing over many different prophecies about kingdoms, tying together into a theme of condemning the proud and sparing the meek. It speaks to how relentless and unwavering God is in this particular strategy. He is not willing to reverse his purpose. This is the purpose that is proposed upon the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For Jehovah of hosts has proposed, and who shall annul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Isaiah 14, 26 to 27. Amazingly, Isaiah also receives some of the most clear and profound descriptions of Jesus Christ and his ministry. But even then, it is characterized by being rejected, punished, misunderstood, and abused. Behold, my servant, Jesus Christ, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, crucified, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle with his blood many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. 
and that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah 52, 13-15 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, children of Israel, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, killed, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah 53, 3-8 Much more could be said about how God's plan to blind his own people until the millennial kingdom could be cited and explained. The book is massive and full of important promises connecting the downfall of kingdoms with the redemption of Zion and the remnant. For now, let us understand that God's plan has never been a failure or a mistake. The Jewish people of Isaiah's day and those today are not being allowed to see Jesus for who he truly is. This is God's judgment, his hand outstretched over the world, and who can turn it away? Let us rather praise God and thank him for extending his promises to us, even though we will be destroyed by Satan and the corrupt Jerusalem will become drunk on our blood. The Tragic Ironies Pile up. After these things I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and is become a habitation of demons, and a hold of every unclean spirit and a hold of every unclean and hateful bird. Revelation 18, 1-2 This angel is so mighty and impressive that we may guess it is an archangel, 
If so, it would probably be Michael, referred to by Daniel as the prince of the Israelites. Jerusalem ought to be his jurisdiction, after all, and he would be eager to see its corrupt form destroyed, so that it can be restored with the reign of Jesus and the millennial kingdom. Either way, we see that the future is discussed as if it were already the past. Babylon is fallen, and not is about to fall. This is because heavenly decrees of God are irreversible, and thus already considered to be done. The seventh vial was poured out, breaking Jerusalem into three parts and opening it up for invasion by the satanic army. The city is doomed. Not only that, but there is a specific focus here on demonic prevalence. Every unclean spirit and demon will be gathered there. This is perfect, because God wants to destroy them all at once, not allow them to scatter or hide. The harvests require that everything is bundled together. As we continue to realize the implications of this paradox, let's turn to Jeremiah who explores the same contradiction we're about to see unfold. He was active during the time of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and so compares Jerusalem and Babylon himself. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her, and let us go every one into his own country. For her judgment reacheth unto heaven, and is lifted up even to the skies. The Lord hath brought forth our righteousness. Come, let us declare Zion in the work of the Lord our God. Jeremiah 51, 9-10 The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, shall the inhabitant of Zion say, and my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, shall Jerusalem say. Jeremiah 51, 35 My people, go ye out of the midst of her, and deliver ye every man from his soul, from the fierce anger of the Lord. Jeremiah 51, 45 God's remnant are supposed to flee Babylon. In Jeremiah's day, this was literally the Neo-Babylonian Empire, holding the Jews captive. But by the end of the world, Jerusalem becomes Babylon itself. This is not new or controversial either. The Apostle Peter labeled the holy city Babylon in his epistles. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And so doth Marcus my son. 1 Peter 5.13 Therefore, Jeremiah's prophetic warning easily doubles as an end-time message to the final flock of believers who are supposed to flee Jerusalem because God is about to destroy it. He could not heal it 
as we already know from Isaiah's description. We see that the violence done to Jerusalem and Zion should be inflicted upon Babylon. This is a perfect description of what will happen, but one that paradoxically happens to the same city. Sadly, by the end, Jerusalem is so blind that it has become the thing it hates the most. Those who are in the city and listen to God are supposed to flee, not defend it. It's good to abandon it, because its destruction is holy. The destruction of Jerusalem does not represent the completion of the Jeremiah 31:37 loophole, or the abandonment of Israel, but rather God's purging of its sins, which must happen. It seems doubtful that the people of that day will realize this. And I will turn my hand of destruction upon thee, Jerusalem, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin, and I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Isaiah 1, 25-28 Zion is redeemed by being destroyed and purged. But the sinners and transgressors will be destroyed also, in the same conflagration of war known as the Day of the Lord. God lures in all of the satanic conspiracy, allows them to raise Babylon to the ground for him, and declare victory, and then hits them with the full power of his own army, led by Jesus Christ. This fulfillment requires an even greater paradox and controversy, which we will explore later. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Revelation 18, 3-4 So we see another parallel of Isaiah and Revelation. The holy people should flee and spare themselves the punishment of Babylon. The 144,000 are not supposed to be hurt, and hopefully will be safe in the third temple with Jesus, singing the song only they can learn. The remainder of Jerusalem will fear God and want to glorify him, but will most likely ignore these warnings, 
and try to defend the city and overcome the beast at the doorstep. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities before being converted. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Revelation 18, 5-8 Tragically, Satanic Jerusalem has glorified itself, lived luxuriously, and believes that it is not even a widow, meaning it does not care about the death of Jesus Christ, its rightful husband. God will not abide this. The city cannot simply have Jesus now, in their fallen state, without being totally purged and burned to the ground first. It does not deserve Jesus, and God will not forget its sins so easily. We might notice a parallel to how sinners must die in Christ and be reborn spiritually, not simply convert on an intellectual level. Isaiah said the blindness will continue until the city is annihilated. Only the 144,000 elect are chosen to have the honor of his protection and guarantee of safety, and the rest may even believe in God, but not receive the same protection. A Reminder of its role as economic queen. The kings of the earth, New World Order elite, who committed fornication, conspiracy, and lived luxuriously with her, Jerusalem, shall weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing from afar on account of the fear of her torment saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, because in one hour your judgment came. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise any more, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, and bodies and souls of men. Revelation 18, 9-13 The elite stay far away from Jerusalem, not interested in waging war and destroying her. This is because the kings of the earth described here are not the same ten horns that have temporary power from the beast. Those kings are only given kingdoms for one hour 
in order to destroy Jerusalem. The regular rulers are mostly interested in getting rich and continuing their New World Order conspiracy. They are heartbroken and hate the destruction. If they indeed implement their Mark of the Beast digital world finance system, it will be headquartered in Israel using their technology. The destruction of Israel means the destruction of the whole post-church world economy. Somehow, they were even able to buy and sell the souls of men, implying that the New Age Gnostic power may actually result in mysticism and soul slavery. The level of demonic activity could be that bad, allowing evil spirits to possess men, perhaps. And they, the merchants, threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and sorrowing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city by which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, because in one hour she was laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Revelation 18, 19-20 Here we have a good reminder that the city is considered guilty of attacking the saints, apostles, and prophets. This rules out America, Britain, and many other countries. Jesus said that Jerusalem itself was the one who killed prophets, and here we see the confirmation. And the light of a lamp shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the princes of the earth. For with thy sorcery, drugs, magic, were all the nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all that have been slain upon the earth. Revelation eighteen, twenty-three to 24 We know that this commentary by the angel takes place immediately before the city's destruction, and so it would have to include all of the events leading up to that point of final judgment. This means that in addition to the guilt brought up by Isaiah and earlier prophets, and the commentary made by Jesus about how it kills the prophets, the city may be indicted for its involvement in future events, like the reign of death on the green horse, and much more depending on Jerusalem's potential involvement with bloody conspiracies. Do not fear any of these things, my beloved brothers and sisters. If you're listening to this and you think this sounds scary or we have to do something about this, we got to protest Israel today or, you know, do something about Jerusalem, that's all missing the point. This is prophecy. 
They don't know that they're fulfilling these prophecies if my theory is true. And I'm not even saying it has to be true. I don't proclaim these things to be factual. I'm not trying to motivate anyone to get political. This is from a book called Maybe Everyone is Wrong, which means I myself could also be wrong. And it's a hypothesis about what the prophecies could mean. And if they are true, then let's just praise God that prophecy will be fulfilled. Our job is not to change or challenge God's prophecy, is it? Of course not. So instead, let's just bolster ourselves in our understanding against satanic deceptions that are going to come in and try to sway us one way or another leading up to these final events. We're entering extreme deception, and we need to cling to the cross, cling to the crown that Jesus gives us when we are saved, and not fear the world, okay? We have nothing to fear. If we die, we go to heaven, and then we come down with Jesus, and it's amazing. We get blessings for being under tribulation. It's like a fire that purifies us, right? So let's go through that fire with praise on our lips, not fear and begrudging and worrying. That's not how Jesus endured his suffering, and that's not how we should endure our suffering. And the next chapter is going to talk about the marriage supper. That's the day of the Lord. That's when the climax really hits with Jesus coming back and all of these prophetic themes tying together. So you have to come back for that. And I look forward to having your feedback. Like this podcast, uh, rate it well on wherever you're listening, and share it with people because this is the free audiobook of this book that I hope helps you and helps other people. So spread it around for their sake, please. Thank you. So long, so long, so